coming up on Economics Explored. So on that level, it is quite concerning, right? We want collective actions to follow some sort of good process and have good properties to come up with. But then it is kind of saying that if you want the decisions to have this sort of consistency, well, then the process itself was quite dictatorial. I mean, the word that is being used in the literature is indeed dictatorial. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast. I'm your host, Jean Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 102 on Arrow's Impossibility Theorem. My guest this episode is Dr. Priscilla Mann, Senior Lecturer in the University of Queensland School of Economics. Priscilla has deep research expertise in the field of economics known as social choice theory. She's had a range of publications in leading economics journals on social choice topics, including on impossibility theorems, of which Arrow's impossibility theorem is the most important one. The theorem was discovered by legendary 20th century American economist Kenneth Arrow, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1972, partly for the theorem. As Priscilla outlines in our discussion, the theorem begins with some desirable criteria for collective decision-making in a democracy. One of the leading public finance textbooks, Rosen and Geyer's textbook, notes, taken together, these criteria seem quite reasonable. Basically, they say that society's choice mechanism should be logical and respect individuals' preferences. Unfortunately, the stunning conclusion of Arrow's analysis is that in general, it is impossible to find a rule that satisfies all these criteria. A democratic society cannot be expected to make consistent decisions. This result, called Arrow's impossibility theorem, thus casts doubt on the variability of democracies to function. That doesn't sound good, does it? Certainly, for some popular decision-making rules, the Arrow impossibility theorem is spot on in identifying flaws. Consider the plurality rule, for example. Under the plurality rule, choices or candidates are ranked according to the number of times that they are ranked first by people ranking them. In politics, this is called a first-past-the-post voting system. In a 2017 Conversation article, Kenneth Arrow's legacy and why elections can be flawed, Harris Aziz from the University of New South Wales wrote, the plurality rule is highly vulnerable to the spoiler effect. Consider the 2000 US presidential elections in which a majority of people from the crucial state of Florida preferred Democrat Al Gore over Republican George W. Bush. But Ralph Nader's presence as a presidential candidate resulted in Bush winning Florida. The rest, as they say, is history. Okay, so how serious is the problem identified by Arrow's impossibility theorem? Does it really cast doubt on the ability of democracies to function? In this episode, Dr. Priscilla Mann helps us understand the theorem and what it means. 
Without giving too much away in the introduction here, I can say that I found Priscilla's words very reassuring. So this is not a pessimistic episode. Before we get to my conversation with Priscilla, as always, let me thank those listeners who've been in touch with me. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions relating to this episode or previous episodes, then please send them to contact at economicsexplored.com. I'd love to hear from you. Also, please check out the show notes for links to materials mentioned in this episode and also for any clarifications of points made in the episode. Righto, now for my conversation with Priscilla. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dr. Priscilla Mann from the University of Queensland, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure, Priscilla. I, I thought you'd be a good person to speak with about the topic of today's conversation. So this topic of impossibility theorems, this came up during a conversation I had with Brendan Markey Towler. We were speaking about public choice theory and Brendan brought up this theory, the Arrow Impossibility Theorem, so named after Kenneth Arrow, one of the great economists of the 20th century. And this theorem is one of his great theorems too. Yes, yes. And uh, uh, was it something that he discovered during his PhD research? Is it was that the the story? Uh, um, I'm not very familiar with that part, but I do know that um, the special thing about this theorem is that it basically almost come up from nowhere. Most of most of everyone's work comes from some sort of literature, and you can trace it. That, you know, this so this whole question dates back to you know eighteen something or seventeen something. But um, error impossibility theorem just comes out from nowhere, and I guess the idea, you know, the the story rumors that goes was that Arrow was trying to work it out. He wanted to work out something that is possible, but then he keeps trying and realize that it's not. possible possible to do the things that he wants to do. So I I can explain about that a little bit. So it's in the general field of social choice theory, they call it nowadays, don't they? So this is about how societies make decisions. Yes. And his theory, which came out in, actually I should get this right, either either the late 40s or the early 50s, I'll put a link in the show notes uh, and clarify (laughs) that, uh, it basically... Well, it appeared to dem. Oh, the the proper occasion there was 1963. So oh, was it? Was. Oh, right. Okay. Maybe it wasn't his PhD thesis. I'll have to um, put that uh, in the show notes. But basically, am I right in saying that this means that there's no perfect voting system? That's essentially the discovery that there are always going to be people who are unhappy with any voting system, and this raises questions about the extent to which democracy is a perfect system. I mean, it's better than all the others, as Churchill sort of would, you know, made that point that, uh, well, it, it's probably the worst system except for all the others, uh, but it's imperfect. So, would, Priscilla, would you be able to take us through what Arrow's impossibility theorem tells us, please? Sure. I mean, um, this theorem itself is actually on a quite an abstract term. It actually does not reference any particular voting system. So um, in a very 
general, a little bit oversimplifying nutshell, what it says is this, suppose we're looking at collective decision. So it can be, you know, just a bunch of people trying to come up with some um, decision. And the theorem says that if we want the collective decisions to have property that looks like a single entity, you know, a consistent kind of decision-making process, then the only way that you can achieve it is that this collective decision is actually dictated by one of the person involved. So that's the basic, basic idea of it. So it doesn't say anything about how you make that decision, whether it's voting, whether it's something else, even drawing lots or stuff like that. But it does say that if you want a collective decision to have rationality aspects, like what we would have expected from a single person decision-making, then the only way you could have achieved it is to have a single person making the decision for everyone. Right, okay. So that means you can't get away from the fact that you may need, if you want to make rational decisions, I mean, assuming you do want rational decisions made for your society, so governments, you want governments to make rational decisions, then there has to be, well, well, you need some, well, you need a decider, so to speak. I hate to use the word dictator, but you need someone to make the decision. You can't just rely upon... Uh, say a citizen-initiated referenda or, or having or asking everyone to vote on something because you may not get a rational answer. Is that essentially it? Mm, yeah, the rationality is not so much in terms of having make a good decision. It means that the across time and across different decisions that the there is some sort of consistency. So it is it is you know say multi-issue kind of consistency or, or across time consistency. I can explain a little yes, bit please. more so yes. that um, it is a bit clearer. So um, just, you know, I'm a parent. So let's think about, you know, the very important, super important household decision of which children show to put on the TV. Okay. okay. We can stream from iView so we can choose. Yes. Now, so here is dad and mom and our two kids. And the theorem, the first thing about the theorem that says is that suppose there are more than three or more than three alternatives. So if it's two alternatives, the solution is actually fairly simple. Simple majority rule usually does things pretty nicely. We can actually get... Um, we can actually get to that point, you know, if you only have two alternatives, and I have done some research on that aspect to, you know, two alternatives for take. But in that case, we do have quite a lot of room to wiggle around. But let's say there are more than two alternatives. So, well, what are the shows that my kids like? Um, they like the wiggles. Yeah. Um, they like Bruy. And uh, some parents doesn't like it, but, you know, they like Peppa Pig. Okay, so it's the wiggles, Bluey. And, and Peppa Pig. Pig. Okay, yes. yep, yep. So three shows on that you can choose to watch on TV. Okay, yep. And we have to make a collective decision on which show to put on TV. Okay. Now, um, we don't just want one single decision at a time. What we want is that we want a whole decision process that if everyone says, you know, this is this is my ranking of this free show. And then given every possible ranking of every person, then let's say we put it into a computer program and then the computer will spit out a 
solution for me and say, okay, if you know that likes this and this and this and mom likes this and this and this and big sister like this and little sister like that, then you know this is the show that we will be watching. So when we talk about a decision rule, a rule actually takes um every individual preference or every individual rankings over all these alternatives and then spit out a decision for us. So this is what we call a decision rule. Yes, yes. Okay. So um, now here comes in a very important assumption of this theorem as well, which is we allowed all possible ranking to occur, to, to be inputted to this mechanism, to the decision rule. So every possible ranking is, is, can be accepted. Now, at this point, you might feel, especially in a case where we are talking about TV show, that might feel actually possible, right? Our, our preference, our taste changes. But um, in actually, in actual society, you know, public choice decision making, as we can naturally later talk a little bit more about it, it's actually not that innocuous an assumption as mm. it might seem. But anyway, so suppose every possible, every ranking is possible and it's possible from everybody. And then what we want is that we want this decision rule to satisfy three properties. The first property is a very simple one. It says that if something is liked by everyone, it's the top choice of everyone, then you should choose it. So this one is fairly intuitive, right? If everyone says... Yes. Um, um, Bruy is the best. Okay, then we put Bruy on. Now, the second one says that, now suppose one of the show is actually unavailable and we have two different profile of our, you know, ranking that differs only in terms of how this unavailable show is ranked relative to the other two. But for the two available shows, all our ranking remains unchanged. Yeah. So if I if in um ranking number one everyone puts or like two person puts um Wiggles above Brewery and the other two puts uh Brewery above Wiggle and then in the other one the same, but you know the only difference between these two ranking profiles is how, where we put Pepper Pig, then if we pick Wiggles in the ranking number one, we should also pick Wiggles in ranking number two. Yeah. We should not change that decision. If the only thing that changes is the ranking of the options that are not available at the moment. So that is the requirement number two. Um, there are many different names for this condition. Um, in my own research with my colleague, um, Dr. Shino Takayama, also at UQ, uh, we call it the independence of infeasible alternative. We yeah. feel that that is more accurately describing it, but different names have been used in the literature. Yeah, I think I remember it as the independence of irrelevant alternatives. Would that be yes. right? Would that be one of yes. the labels? Yeah. Yes, that's the, that's the more traditional term of it. The reason we don't want to use the word irrelevant is because there is another reason why an alternative might be, why an option might be irrelevant, which, is, which brings me to the third point or the third property that we want to have which is what we call the independence of a losing alternative. So in this case, an alternative is irrelevant, not because it's not feasible, but because it wasn't chosen. Mm. So let's say if out of 
Um, so I fixed the ranking and let's say out of all the three shows, we choose Bluey. Yeah. Now suddenly our preferences haven't changed, but um, suddenly um, Peppa Pig is not available. Then from the remaining one, since, you know, I only lose one that wasn't chosen, I shouldn't change my decision. We should still be choosing Bluey. Yes, yes. That's the, that's the third um, requirement that we have had, um, which we call it um, an independence of losing alternative. Again, you know, there are different other names of it. And um, the way, one of the way that this requirements come up is more in election where if a candidate sees that he or she is losing and withdraws from the election, it shouldn't change the election result, the idea being. Right. Okay. Yep. Yep. So these are the three requirements. So the first one is a kind of a, you know, Pareto or optimality principle where, you know, if everyone likes something, yes, choose that. The second one is an inter-ranking um, profile consistency. So across different possible rankings, but if those rankings are only changing at, for, at the part that doesn't that we cannot really consider, we should have a consistency of choice over these different um, ranking profiles. Okay. And the last one was that I fixed the ranking profile, but then um, if I am taking away options that were not chosen before, we shouldn't change the choice as well. So it's again some kind of consistency over the what is available. Okay, so... Could I, Priscilla, could I just go back to the the decision making process? So there's yourself, your husband, and and your children. So so if we've got four people making choices regarding the the programs, and you're giving them you're giving them a ranking from one to four. Uh, no, there are three programs. So you know there are oh three. Yeah, sorry, yeah, <laughs> silly me. Yeah, three <laughs> programs. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So each of us can rank them. One to three, um, which one do I like more? And how do you determine from that which program wins? Is it the one that gets? Uh, I'm just trying to think what the actual voting rule is, the decision rule. Oh, you don't know. It can be anything. I mean, um, you can write down some more easily understand voting rule, like you know anything that gets at least three votes, and if not, then maybe we'll do okay. something else. Um, you can write down something like that, but this theorem is so general that it does not even specify what you do with it. So is that right? We, right. So you can think of it as someone just write up a computer program. We all input our, we all input our ranking, and then boom, something will come up. Okay. Right. So I mean, what it could do is it could, it could give a score of three to your top choice, and. Then you just add up the scores for all the programs and work out which one gets the the highest score. That might be a way you could do it. Yeah, that actually is very close to what we call the border rule voting system, and it's susceptible to what we what this theorem is going to. So it ha- and that's problematic. What what was that voting system called? Sorry, I think it's called border rule. B O R D A. Okay. Okay. I'll have to look that up, and uh, that, that, this might be getting too technical for. Yeah. But I was just, yeah, I was just wondering about that. So, so this is interesting. So Arrow develops this, well, a very powerful theorem because it it's relevant to all sorts of decision making rules or voting 
systems. Yes. How do you do this? Is this in set theory? I mean, obviously there's a lot of mathematics involved in this. Uh, like is um, it conceptually challenging what he did or is it just insightful? I think it's more insightful. I mean, the um, since arrows there have been at least, you know, this, this is one of the most studied theorem in economics, I would right. say. There has been um, people trying to simplify his proof, dissect his proof, um, do his proof in a more, in an easier way, um, and even using different techniques of proving the same theorem. So if you ask me, at the end of the day, the proof is actually conceptually not super hard, but, um, you know, I myself purposely prove as well on this as well. So um, it is not super advanced mathematics. It's more like looking at the profiles and then see what is actually going on. Right. It, working on examples. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So I'll have to put some links in the show notes to to guides or to examples of it or that illustrate how to to demonstrate it because I think it, it's probably going to be impossible to do that in – I mean, we couldn't go through the proof here on the show yeah. and I wouldn't expect that. But um, I guess I was just asking that because, I mean, Arrow's famous also for the proving the existence of – general equilibrium under certain conditions but that, that uses proof some... is actually much i would say that proof is actually much more technical than this yes, one. yes 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 yep. um there's actually i have seen a graphical proof of of arrows impossibility theorem i think i saw in a textbook okay I mean, um it's a textbook by jelly and Remy. is a quite a standard kind of phd first year level okay after Look into it. Uh, so, Priscilla, where I'd like to go for the rest of our conversation is I'd like to ask you, well, firstly, like, what does this mean? Like, is this something that should concern us as citizens? And so what, I guess a good place to start would be why was this such a revelation to people? I mean, you mentioned that this came out of nowhere and then it, it sounds like it's prompted a lot of research. Why are people interested in that? And that must be related to well, what it means, what, why is this important? And so that would be the first thing I want to chat about. And then after that, I'm interested in your own research because I know you've been doing research into impossibility theorems and I'm interested in where that literature is going and what, you're try- what those big research questions are that you're looking at. So if we could begin with the first one, please. What okay. is it about this that's so important? Why, why are we concerned about it? Well, I guess the first thing that it hits everyone, it was a surprise, was because, you know, the three conditions that we were talking about just now seems very intuitive. And then Arrow's theorem told us that the only way you can have it is that your decision-making would be you just listen to one of the people around and that person determines everything. And that is the only way you could have satisfied those three conditions. Right. So is this- now, it didn't say which one of you would have that power, but it does say that one of you would have that power. So on that level, it is quite concerning, right? We want collective actions to follow some sort of good process and have good properties to come up with. But then 
it is kind of saying that if you want the decisions to have this sort of consistency, well, then the process itself was quite dictatorial. I mean, the word that is being used in the literature is indeed dictatorial. So, right. So, does this raise questions about our voting systems, the the nature of our democracy, that we should avoid just fifty plus one or majority rules? We want to make sure that there is a much wider support for a particular policy than than just 50 plus one. Is that one way of looking? Uh, is that one thing we could take out of this arrow and possibility theorem? Not so much. Um, one thing, first of all, we have to remember that this is more than two alternatives. And actually quite a lot of decisions that we make, especially, you know, referendum, really important things, yeah. they're usually binary decisions. And as I mentioned, binary decisions, we actually have um, a lot more room to wiggle. Oh, that's good. That's good, yeah. But I think what it does say is that when there are more than two options, then my take on it is that if we do want to adopt such a very general um, setting, then we can't hope for the consistencies that are required. If we think very hard about it, the idea that the decisions should be be independent of what is not available is actually not as innocuous as we first thought. The reason is what is meant by an unavailable option. Um, we can think of a we can think of every possibility in the universe. Yeah. Um, and then also rank those possibilities. You know, one that aliens come to rule us and erect eradicate coronavirus for us in a certain because of some alien technology for instance that is actually a theoretical possibility but that we would not rank it because we think it's not possible yes but then if I start bringing that into the social discussion I would suppose that it would change quite a bit of the decision making as well right So what is really meant by an infeasible alternative is actually not a a black and white thing. You know, what what options are we bringing into the social dialogue and what are we keeping out from the social dialogue is not completely objective. And if it is not completely objective, then why can't the society, why can't the decisions of the society respond to that. I think it's actually asking a little bit too much to say that we have to be completely, our decisions has to be completely independent of that. Similarly, you know, when we are talking about, you know, withdrawing a losing alternative would change, we should not change our decision. That's actually, we know in many of our real life examples that it actually it's not super realistic either, right? Um, something that we know is going to lose out for sure, but whether it's there or it's not there, might change some people's mind and therefore might change what we want to agree upon um, as a society, as part of some bargaining process, for instance. So to ask for a collective decision that is completely independent of these, I actually don't think it is 
very practical or very um, how to how to put it. I think practical is the word. is It's not as theoretically ideal as it might sound when we write it down on paper. So I, you know, my own take on this is actually a bit about. Well, yes, collective decisions are not individual decisions. And that's, that's the fact that we have to accept. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. If you think about it, why should a society function like as if it is one person? It is not. Okay, so you're basically saying we can't... Am I right in saying you, it's impossible to aggregate... And this is the impossibility, I suppose. It's impossible to aggregate the preferences of individuals to come up with the the decision that a benevolent social planner would make? Is that one way of describing it? Um, no. I mean, well, if you do have a benevolent dictator, you, you can let the, the dictator choose what he wants. That That is one form of aggregation. So what I'm saying is that um, I don't see the... I don't see there being a very big necessity that a collective decision, that decision rules, needs to satisfy this independence axiom that much. Um, There is actually some theoretical reason of sometimes why we want those independence axioms because that helps us to do implementation. So he just now I was assuming that everyone just input their preference, you know, the ranking honestly, but you can think of people lying trying to uh, in order to get a better outcome from the machine. Um, so one of the reasons why we want those independence axioms is that, you know, with those, then you can prevent the lying. But um, in a lot of situations where we we think about this strategic reporting, um, so the technical term is mechanism design. Yeah. We have we have something called money. Mm. And this actually goes back to the point that I made about that every ranking is possible, this assumption, this condition, that this requirement that this machine will take every possible ranking, this condition actually breaks down when I have money and if everyone likes more money than less money. So I would not have a ranking where someone prefer having less money to mm. more money. Then again, you know, once you have, once you break these conditions, then you can have something that is quite reasonable, you know, quite democratic and, you know, give you good outcomes. Um, and it doesn't, and it doesn't violate some of these consistencies requirement. So that underlying condition that every possible ranking is possible is actually a very strong assumption in many settings as well. Even in political settings, um, more often than not, we, we do not expect that we have a lot of variations in how people rank parties or candidates or social issues. They, there is some kind of correlation typically. Right. So in that sense, this theorem is quite restrictive too. Okay. I'll have to uh, look at and see whether there are any real-life political examples of where this 
impossibility theorem could be relevant and where it could mean that you get choices that yeah don't really you can't say that they're rational in any way or that they, they violate these are they axioms or would you call them yeah. axioms yeah okay right okay one other thing I want to point out is that yeah the word dictatorship you know puts a lot of us off but in some cases um it's actually something a lot milder okay. Um, so think of a situation where I have, say, some some assignment problems. You say I have 10 people and I have to assign them to 10 houses. Say yeah. One way we could do is that we determine some order of these 10 people. It can either be a random draw or, you know, mm. we determine, you know, according to their needs. But anyway, I, I, I have a list of these 10 people. And then I tell the first one, okay, choose the one you like first. And then the first one, choose one. And then the second one, we ask him to choose from the remaining nine possible. And then all the way down to the yeah. last person. And we would probably feel that this is quite a fair or reasonable system. Um, but it's actually a kind of dictatorship that we call serial dictatorship, which is allowed under Arrow's impossibility theorem as well. You call it what, sorry? What sort of dictatorship? A serial dictatorship. Okay. In a sense, it's a series of dictators. So um, here, what we are going to choose between are the different possible allocations of the houses, right? So the first person is the first dictator. He chooses the among all possible allocations, um, those that he likes more, which is the ones that he is assigned to the best house. But then he is indifferent between what other people are getting. So then he he so he chooses the ones that he likes most and then he leaves the choice to the second dictator who then chooses from the remaining alternatives the ones that he yeah. likes more and then leave it to the third one and then until the last person can only get the last house. This is actually a form of dictatorship. Yeah. In a, in this you know technical theoretical definition, but it's not something that we would feel being very unpleasant either. Yeah, so so because you mentioned the random element of it, didn't you? And that could be construed as or considered fair. So yes. we wouldn't necessarily see that as a as a problem. Okay. Yeah, you you can determine that actually some. Um, say if you think about say college um, university place assignment, yes. it has this it has this flavor. And the good thing about it is that if you do it like this, um, everyone would have the incentive not to lie about what they like more. You don't you won't have people trying to pretend that you know I actually like that you know house number three more because I know that house number three is less likely to be already have chosen by someone else and if I do not get it I get a much worse choice. Oh yes, I see, I see. So this kind of mechanism actually has a has a um advantage that is actually truth telling. Okay, okay. Is this, and is this what dictatorship uh, encourage that, right? Because if I let you to be the dictator, you better tell me what you really like. Okay, so we could get we could get better outcomes if we randomly make people dictators temporarily. Is that the is that a takeaway, or or in this in this serial decision making process that you're? 
in in this in this particular setting, yes, you know, you you can get a you can get an efficient outcome if you if you randomly make right. people. And what um, do you know the paper that this was demonstrated in, Priscilla, or who demonstrated um, this? No, this is actually coming from the matching or assignment literature. Okay. Um, it is quite well known. I mean, the the first way of showing that it is a dictatorship is actually more general. It's come from the um, mechanism design. So it, it's kind of an insight by looking into different uh, literature. But um, okay. by now, we pretty much realized that so this is typically the method proposed in um, college admission, actually. Where college the, admission, where, right. Yeah, yeah, where yeah. the order of dictatorship is not even determined, not necessarily randomly, but by the score of the student. So you get to be a higher order dictator. You know, you get to choose first if your you know university entrance score is higher. Okay, okay. And so this... Uh this system was this Roth who d- developed this? Was it um, the Roth? The Roth, the one hand that he used the Boston, the Boston mechanism is more a deferred acceptance. Uh, so that okay. one has a bit of. It, it really depends because in the one that I talk about, the university has no preferences over the student. So the houses have no preference about the people. Who, uh, whereas in the Boston school mechanism, the school actually have preference over the student as well. So that makes some things a little bit different. Okay. I might have to cover that in a future episode. I'll have to look more into that. No, it's <laughs> fascinating. Uh, okay. And, and so where's your research going, Priscilla? What have you been looking at? You've been looking at a variety of impossibility theorems. Is that right? Um, well, not so much a variety. Um, most of the theorems that I have looked at are existing theorem. But okay. um, what we were trying to show is that these all these theorems basically comes down to the same basics. So, you know, there are, as we talk about, these two independence axioms that we were talking about, and they show up in different ways. So, um you know, arrows put it in a particular way, but then when we get to um, mechanism design or about monotonic, monotonic social choice, so that, you know, if the ranking of one options goes up, rather only goes up for everyone, then, you know, and if it was chosen before, it has to remain being chosen. Um, we show that that actually also has to do with these independence axioms. And then, as I mentioned a little bit about um, in more of an election setting, then the independence systems comes out as if there is a candidate there and if the candidate is dropped out, um, it shouldn't affect the election outcome. Now, as I say, this is this is a very idealized um, requirement. Mm. In reality, I think is it is not a bad thing if... An election is affected by who puts the hats in. And I, I think that's reasonable. I mean, it's, it's not something that is um, 
that that would be saying, oh, this is so undesirable. You know, um, people people can strategically decide whether they want to enter an election or not. People do strategically decide uh, decide whether they want to enter an election. You know, um, and and that is one of the very important decisions in politics as well. So, um, saying that we only a system that would prevent people from strategically doing that is a good one. I think that's saying too much. But of course, once we drop this requirement, you know, then a lot of voting systems are actually quite all right. Okay, okay. Well, that's reassuring. Okay, so what were the other impossibility theorems, Priscilla, that you looked at? Um, there is a two very important and famous one. One is called the Muller-Satterwhite theorem. It talks about um, social choices that are monotonic. And as I said, monotonic means that if the relative ranking of one options only goes up, but not uh, for, for everyone, then if it was chosen before, it should remain being chosen. Yeah. Monotonicity is actually very important because this is is closely tied to what we call strategic proofness or um, truth telling, as we were talking about just now. Yeah, yeah. And that brings us to another theorem called the Gilbert Satoy theorem, which shows that if you want a social choice function that cannot be manipulated by people by through lying about their preferences then, you know, and under certain condition, then, you know, it actually has to, again, has to be a dictatorship. And that brings us to the assignment problem. So the solution for the assignment problem is actually a serial dictatorship. But again, as I say, in that case, it doesn't doesn't sound too bad. I mean, we call it a dictatorship, but, but it's something that most people would feel is quite fair. Yes, yes, okay. Right. This is fascinating, Priscilla. I'm going to have to look more into it, it seems, and uh, do a bit more research. Uh, I, I remember studying this arrow and possibility theorem, well, a long time ago now, and um, well, decades ago, really, and, uh, and I sort of recall that it does say something about our voting systems and that they're imperfect, and it can be then, therefore, difficult to get decisions that satisfy these axioms which you would say are desirable and but to so to satisfy the the axioms you you essentially need to make someone a dictator is that yes okay gotcha gotcha right okay and so uh i think we chatted about the idea of a benevolent dictator and i guess if uh that could be a reasonable system if you've got the right benevolent dictator. So if you have someone like Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, but otherwise uh, not a good system in, in my well, view. Well, you know, I, I, I'm i not even very sure about that. Oh, okay. <laughs> but what I would say is that um, these requirements, these conditions that that we put on, you know, theoretically they, they might sound very intuitive, but if you really probe them and ask, you know, what does that mean if I'm putting them into a real life situation, you might actually realize that it is not as essential as one would think. And to be honest, you know, one one thing that we talk about is that, oh, it's like individual rationality, you know, my mm. choice should not met, should not be affected by what is not 
affordable to me. But actually, these days with behavioral economics, we know that even individual decision making is quite susceptible to, you know, what other possibilities might be out there, even though those possibilities are not available to me. So I think in light of that, um, is it necessarily very logical or reasonable to ask for collective decisions to exhibit that kind of independence of irrelevant alternatives? I am not so sure. Indeed, one of the interesting things that I personally have found, and I don't think much research has been done on this front, but I think there might be some potential going forward that way, is to look at if we put behavioral economics, you know, all those nudges, um, how people are susceptible to framing, and if we take that and put them into social choice, what would have happened? Um, and when I say when we put it into social choice, there are two ways of thinking about it. One is that I assume that the society is a single person, but it's a single person who can fall prey to these framing or nudges or you know, effects of things that might be around. Um, and Arrow's impossibility theorem in this sense then tell us why the collective action may fall prey to these um, framing because it is not a dictatorial process. Mm. Arrow's impossibility theorem says that if it is not, a dictatorial process, then some of these independence would be violated at some point. And so we can, one possibility is to actually think of the whole society. Yes, it's a person, but it's a person like the person we know from behavioral economics that his or her preference or his decision is very much affected by something that is not currently available, but is a possibility. I think that is that could potentially be quite interesting you know, marrying these two strands of the literature. I think we should leave it there, Priscilla. I've, I've got so much to think about. Uh, I've, <laughs> yeah, I've really appreciated your your insights into it and your your depth of knowledge of this topic of impossibility theorems. Uh, it's uh, it's revealed that I'm going to have to delve much more into it and, and try and uh, – yeah, improve my understanding in the future, but that helped a lot. So uh, Dr. Priscilla Mann from University of Queensland School of Economics, thanks so much. Thank you. Nice talking to you too. Okay, that's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week, goodbye.